Good evening to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. It's great to be back on the air. Uh, Last night I was on assignment. I wonder why that could be. And in preparation for tonight's history uh, podcast session. Well, being on assignment is never a bad thing because uh, it allows me to prepare for uh, what's in store uh, so that I have all the necessary information to share with you, my fellow listeners, because uh, without that information, then how can um, any story that can be shared um, have any uh, significant relevance? Yes, people can um, tell a story about someone or something in a day's time, which is not a bad thing, but... I believe when talking about men like Dr. Joseph Warren, for example, that can't necessarily be shared in just one night alone. Sure, you can mention facts about him, but if you really want to get to know this person, then you've really got to be able to um, study him from the time he was a a young man up until the time he he leads uh, the Patriots into battle, most notably at uh, Breeds Hill, or what many of us know as uh, Bunker Hill, on come June 17th of 1775. So anyways, we are um, live once again in discussing founding martyr, the life and death of none other than Dr. Joseph Warren, the American Revolution's lost hero by Christian de Spigna. What we're going to be focusing on tonight is uh, we've now left the year 1774 and now have gone on to 1775. Now, from the previous night's podcast, we did mention a little bit about 1775, but now we are really into the heart of 1775. And what do I mean necessarily by the heart of 1775? Well, you know, most of us know that when 1775 happens or occurs, that's when the Second Continental Congress convenes in May of that year in Philadelphia. Because remember, in, in October of 1774, every all the delegates came to a unanimous agreement that the um, non-importation agreements would go into play, which meant that Um, There would be a ban on all British um, imported goods coming into colonial America. But remember this now, from October uh, up till May, that's seven months. And And what do you know? In seven months, what does England fail to do? They failed to listen to our concerns. But we'll talk a little bit more about that here soon. So uh, the month before May, when the Second Continental Congress convenes, we have um, April of 1775, and there's a lot going on in the month of April. For starters, Dr. Joseph Warren now will become General Joseph Warren. Yes, he still is a doctor, but hey, a new uh, title goes a long way. And given that he is now General Joseph Warren, He will be the head overseer of all military affairs in Massachusetts. Now, remember, folks, most men who um, have served in the military who reside in colonial America had served in the French and Indian War on the British side, but they also would have received some kind of formal military education in England. If you came from a very um, prestigious family, 
you could have afforded to have sent your son overseas to England to learn all the fine um, virtues of becoming a gentleman, which also might have included uh, some military uh, schooling as well. But nonetheless, I, I truly believe Dr. Joseph Warren is definitely fit for being a general. Well, I mean, after all, the man has served on every committee in Massachusetts in terms of preparedness and safety. So if not him, who else? So here's a question to consider. Did anyone below Warren have success in obtaining intelligence on potential British attacks or should I say raids? Well, the answer is yes. A handful of Warren's men gathered intelligence in one particular situation that I think was a very uh, crucial one, but a handful of men below him gathered intelligence about a plan where British General Thomas Gage planned on sending troops to Concord where Patriot cannon and artillery were located in an effort to seize those munitions slash supplies. Okay, well, the beginning... Um, part was achieved in that um, a handful of uh, Warren's men below him were able to um, obtain the intelligence. Now the bigger question is this, how, does, how will Joseph Warren himself um, go about taking all this information and using it to his advantage? Well, he does decide that the time is right to strike a huge blow right away in response to what he's learned. For starters, he will send Paul Revere with direct orders to travel directly to Lexington. And if any of you all are wondering, where are Lexington and Concord in relation to Boston? They, those towns, or let alone those two towns, are west of Boston. What's unique about many towns outside of Boston, most of them primarily run in a north-south direction, but you have towns uh, west of Boston that are also very essential. And what do you know, Lexington and Concord uh, will play an essential role that we'll be finding out here soon. So nonetheless, Paul Revere um, has been given orders by Dr. Warren to travel directly to Lexington, where Revere himself will, will provide essential information to John Hancock and Samuel Adams. And this essential information obviously has to do with the intelligence obtained by the men below Warren. Well, why would that? Why would it be important for uh, Paul for uh, Paul Revere to do this? Well, think about it. If one area is going to be impacted by a potential attack, especially Concord, then the people in Lexington need to know because the British have to go through Lexington first before getting to Concord, and if the if community members, especially those who serve in the militia and just everyday townspeople aren't made aware. Uh, for all we know, they could be taken uh, hostages by the British, and let alone their property and their homes could be confiscated. So there's a lot at stake here. Here's a, a question to take into consideration. Who led the march to Concord on the British side? It wasn't General Thomas Gage. The answer is a lieutenant colonel by the name of Francis Smith, whom oversaw 21 companies of light infantry and grenadiers. It's a lot of companies to oversee. 
And if any of you are curious to know, what is the difference between light infantry and grenadiers? Well, if you are a, a part of what is known as the light infantry team, it refers to soldiers who carry lightweight equipment. And these men were known to fight in a non-rigid formation. In other words, light infantry men are not going to be um, always lining up side by side in an open battlefield, um, shooting um, straight at the uh, opposition from the other side. Many of these uh, light infantry soldiers um, will usually go past or let alone go ahead of the main army to harass and disrupt uh, the opposition's supply lines. So in other words, light infantry men are capable or are going to uh, lead that first round of what you call scare tactics by harassing and uh, disrupting the opposition line. It might even be what we would think of as like a, a guerrilla attack. In other words, open warfare with uh, smaller um, regiments or smaller numbers of men, let alone, who, um, who can wreak havoc on the opposition. In other words, their numbers might not be big, but, but they have enough power to disrupt the opposition's uh, game plan. Matter of fact, that would actually prove to be very true um, down the road, uh, not to get ahead of things, but really down the road when the American Revolution starts to see more activity in the southern colonies. And if any of y'all are wondering about guerrilla warfare and when it really started, um, it actually started in the French and Indian War, but when it comes to the American Revolution, Think of Francis Marion, a.k.a. the Swamp Fox, on the uh, American side. He was known for, re for, um, for conducting several uh, guerrilla-style operations that disrupted um, General uh, Charles Cornwallis's um, game plan strategies to, um, to, what do you call it, um, conquer the South to the point where Colonial America would um, eventually just secede, would uh, not secede, would um, surrender and um, submit, um, resubmit to uh, British authority. But again, not to get uh, too ahead into the history, but, but, uh, but for an example of light infantry, they were known to uh, conduct themselves in uh, guerrilla-style uh, fighting. As for grenadiers... I think most of us should know what how the term grenadier uh, evolves, but I didn't know this until not long ago, so uh, even I learned something new, folks. Grenadiers are uh, really referred to as your strongest and largest of soldiers, whereas a light infantry man will probably carry less equipment. Uh, the grenadiers, on the other hand, are going to be the opposite. They're going to have more to uh, carry. But they are your strongest and largest of soldiers in a regiment. They uh, were the ones who participated in assault operations and would conduct or let alone be involved in the throwing of hand grenades. Well, what do, what do, you, what do we all know? There are still grenades today that are used. And grenadiers, it's a French name. And grenades themselves are, are um, big. And they're strong force. Um, you know, you throw one, it can cause a lot of damage, can even result in the death to uh, multiple soldiers.
So these are the kinds of men that uh, British Lieutenant Colonel Francis Smith has uh, transporting. Here's a bonus question to think about. Which side would prevail in having the upper hand at Concord? Given that um, the objective at Concord is that um, the British are trying to uh, steal, um, they're trying to basically steal, um, uh, what do you call it, uh, ammunition, not ammunition, but they're trying to steal um, munitions and supplies. Now, when I usually, when I tend to think of Concord, I, th I tend to think of uh, the battle at Concord on April 19th of 1775, but there's another uh, would-be plot that um, that the Patriot side is really trying to work hard to, th uh, to thwart. Another word for thwarting means to avoid or prevent from happening. So the question again is, which side would prevail in having the upper hand at Concord? The answer is the Patriots. How did the Patriots uh, prevail? Well, it's fair to say that uh, Paul Revere is the, the one whom we have to thank for all this. He established a prearranged signal device system which alerted Patriots across the river in Charlestown, which is north of, just north of Boston, of the British route for departure from Boston so a signal device system. Now remember, folks, uh, even in 18th century times, people are very savvy. They, they, we can say that in 18th century times, people are technologically savvy. Sure, they may not have what we think of as cell phones today. And there, yes, there may not be other means of instant communication. But hey, a signal device system, that was a big deal back then. So, let's find out a little bit more about the signal uh, device uh, system. Once Paul Revere received the orders from Dr. Joseph Warren, or let alone maybe I should say General Joseph Warren, the signal device would be put into play. Now, where is the signal device going to go? It's got to go somewhere where it's not going to be completely visible to the enemy, or let alone to those who are not just loyalists, but to those who are neutral. I think it's bad enough if you have a loyalist or, or men and women who are loyalists to the crown, but what about those who are neutral? Those who are neutral can be even worse than the loyalists because the neutrals are the ones who will either make or break any kind of a relationship that uh, people have in the community with one another. So, Paul Revere obviously has gone about um, in installing a signal device that is put into play. It involves the use of two lanterns lit in the steeple of Boston's Old North Church. Once the, um, the lanterns were lit, what would be um, the most obvious sign? It would mean that the redcoats are coming by sea. You know, here we've, here we've always been told, and it is true that Paul Revere uh, rode by horseback to warn the communities that the British were coming, but there has to be another way to warn people without causing a lot of panic. Well, 
I, I, I say once again, this two lantern, uh, lighting two lanterns in the church was a very, very um, advanced techn- technological way to warn um, especially the uh, military commanders in Boston of what was to come. So once these um, lanterns were lit, Paul Revere would go about moving undetected by boat. And once he crossed over into the Charles River into Cambridge, he left by horse. So that's where, that's the beginning of his famous ride. But I must tell you all this, Paul Revere didn't do this ride by himself. Of course, we've all been told for years he did, but there's just no way that one man alone could uh, conduct um, a ride by himself. Uh, As a matter of fact, in uh, David Hackett Fisher's book that I read not too long ago about Paul Revere's ride, um, there was a very, very um, unique um, system for horse riders to relay the messages to communities about the um, about the comings and goings of British movement, not just in Boston, but the outlying areas outside of Boston. Uh, so I can tell you this much, Paul Revere would have gone in one direction, and then um, William Dawes and uh, John Hancock would have gone in another direction. I think Sam Adams even participated in this as well. So the bottom line is you have a lot of men going in different routes as a matter of fact, you even have some men uh, coming from Connecticut uh, into Massachusetts to to warn. Well, think about it. It makes sense. Mass- Connecticut borders Massachusetts. So does New Hampshire. So you could have men coming from New Hampshire into Massachusetts to warn. Think about it, folks. I mean, we you know it's one thing to have one or one to five men um, or up to five men conducting. Um, what do you call it, uh, a ride or, or rides throughout various towns. But, but very few people alone can accomplish the whole task. So this network of riders coming from all different directions to warn uh, the towns and communities on the outskirts of Boston, it's crucial. How so? Because the, the locals or the, the people in the towns They've got to be able to find a way to assemble. They've got to be able to be prepared. They've got to be able to evacuate other loved ones. They've got to be able to. They've got to be able to find ways to protect their uh, belongings, uh, because they don't know what to expect. But they've got to find ways to be able to be prepared so that they're not caught off guard, and that most of all, they're not going to be intimidated by the mightiest empire in the world. So, um, while Paul Revere, along with John Hancock, Sam Adams, and William Dawes go about alerting the townspeople and militia from places outside of Boston, Joseph Warren goes about destroying sensitive documents to reviewing patient caseload and leaving last-minute instructions to apprentices, friends, and associates in Boston. Why would he uh, be? Um, dis- why would he go about destroying sensitive documents? Well, I-, I will tell you this much: Joseph Warren's not hiding skeletons. I can promise you that much. He's destroying sensitive documents because he doesn't want them in the hands of the wrong people. 
I mean, it's bad enough if the British got their hands on them, and it's bad enough that you know someone who's loyalist could um, give those papers to um, British officers of high rank. But what about to those who have not taken a side yet? That's damaging right there, too. So the bottom line is, is that just because you have sensitive papers in a, in a secret, um, what do you call it, like a, like a safe or, or in some other, um, what do you call it, secret uh, cabinetry uh, that most other people don't know, it doesn't automatically mean that your material is 100% safe. So come April 19th of 1775, the first shots are fired in the morning hours at Lexington. And when the first shots are fired, what is that famous uh, phrase? The shots heard round the world. As a matter of fact, though, many historians aren't really 100% sure who really did fire the first shot, whether it was the British or the um, Americans, they're not really sure. But it is safe to say that the reason why the term, the shots, heard, the shots heard around the world, is phrased the way it is, phrased the way it is, it's in large part because the Americans did not back down. I saw a documentary not too long ago on YouTube, and there are a lot of great documentaries, uh, not only with just the Boston Massacre, but even with uh, the battles at uh, Lexington and Concord, where a, a group of about 30 or 40 men, I don't know if even 30 or 40, let alone, I know it was less than 50, but in this documentary, it had about 20 to 25 men at best on the Patriot side, out on the um, commons, uh, what was known as Lexington Green, and a handful of uh, British um, soldiers and their commanders come forward, and the commander basically instructs the the Americans to um, leave the premise. And of course, the Americans object. They say that they have a right to properly assemble and petition. But what historians now know is that the British commanders never gave instructions never gave proper instructions on their, on their own men to fire into enemy lines. So, after, at, at day's end, or maybe, I don't know if I should say day's end, what I do know is that, this, uh, that the Battle of Lexington occurred in the morning, hours. But it did result in the deaths of uh, roughly nine militiamen. The British didn't suffer any casualties, But what I do know is this, and uh, I think we all should be reminded about this. It's one thing to die on a battlefield, and I always was, and I always had been led to believe that those who died at Lexington died on the battlefield. It turns out that historians know that two of the men who died at Lexington actually were able to um, make off, make out. They were actually able to leave the battlefield, and they, and many, pretty much all of these men who fought at Lexington lived right nearby. So it's not like they were marching twenty miles from some other location just to get to Lexington to fight. Historians know that the two men who, two of the nine men who died at Lexington, actually were 
running for their lives to get back home to be um, properly um, tended to. And sadly, those two men died right in front of their um, families. One man died right before he could reach the steps. Now, I can't imagine being his family, especially his children and, and his wife, and all of them watched him die right before he could get inside the house. That's a very sad way to go. But remember something too, folks. That man, along with the other man who died in front of his family, they paid a huge, they made a huge sacrifice. They laid everything on the line so that the rest of their families could live in freedom. I also learned from uh, Paul Revere's ride that another man had been shot at Lexington. He survived his wound, but I will have to say this. He mustered up enough courage to still be able to go on to fight at Concord, and sadly, he lost his life there. So we have to remember, folks, that uh, there were people who were wounded. And just because they were wounded, it didn't mean they just threw in the towel. They still had enough um, resolve in them to get back up and do something about it. Matter of fact, the, the group of men who fought at Lexington, those who survived, actually would later that day march to Concord. And then they would, and it's fair to say that at Concord, which I'll be talking about here soon, they were able to exact their revenge on the British. So yes, there is a lot of, lot of things going on on April 19th of 1775. Yes, the start of, um, Lex, the start of really what we now uh, know as actual warfare. But at Lexington, it's the shots heard around the world. Uh, the same for Concord, but it is fair to say that Lexington deserves uh, the first, um, first uh, right for that uh, phrase. Now, was Joseph Warren at Lexington? He was. And it turns out that he almost lost his life there, too. He had, um, he had bullets fly or let alone graze over him. Now, in the aftermath of the Lexington battle, Samuel Adams departs Massachusetts for Philadelphia. I think this was a smart move, and remember this too, folks. It's one thing to travel somewhere from point A to point B. But we have to remember, Samuel Adams now is going from Massachusetts to Pennsylvania. That's not going to be a two-day uh, journey, I can promise you that. It, it could take him probably at least a week to get to Philadelphia. How do you think he'll get to Philadelphia, just out of curiosity? Well, I mean, he could take a horse and buggy, but he's also got some other ways to get to uh, Philadelphia. As a matter of fact, I learned that uh, some of the delegates um, actually traveled by, um, by ferry boat to Philadelphia. Not only just those delegates from the northern colonies, but those from the southern colonies Matter of fact, it probably was safer by boat than by uh, horse and buggy. How so? Well, traveling by horse and buggy, um, the weather conditions and just road conditions just weren't great. I mean, seriously, can you all imagine traveling by horse and buggy in a muddy road? And then let alone um, your um, carriage breaks down and who, and who knows how long uh, that delay might last? So let, let's keep in mind about travel. 
So the primary reason why, though, Samuel Adams is going, it's not because he knows that he, he needs to go on to Pennsylvania. He believes that uh, fewer government officials on a battlefield will lead to better handling of daily governmental affairs by those who were not just educated, but also knew how to keep government functioning in the midst of a crisis. I think that's smart. Think about this. If you have Samuel Adams, John Hancock, Paul Revere out there fighting, and let's say one or two of those men die, who's going to um, take their place? I'm not saying that there aren't people in line out there who would be willing to take their places, but here's the other question too. If, any, if, if Paul Revere died on a battlefield, if somebody replaced him, would that individual carry the same stature as Revere? Would that person be able to possess the same talents and qualities? It's hard to say, but the bottom line is you don't want to have all of your top-ranking officials out on the battlefield because you need men like Samuel Adams and eventually John Adams. You need um, James Otis, um, John Hancock. You need these other men um, who are very proficient in daily governmental affairs to be helping out in any way there is possible to run the government. Uh, not just, I mean, really for Massachusetts, because without them, how is, how is government going to be able to function? And if you think that's um, if you think that's a challenging uh, aspect, now um, we go to the afternoon of April nineteenth, seventeen seventy five. And what's important about um, April nineteenth or the afternoon of April nineteenth, seventeen seventy five? Well, we are now at, into Concord, which is just west of Lexington. But the Battle of Concord breaks out, and militia companies from nearby towns left and right descend upon the scene to engage the British. The British forces are attacked upon from all angles, and by day's end, the British had suffered nearly close to 300 casualties. That is a lot of casualties, folks. And this includes a a high number of wounded troops, which was roughly triple the number of American losses. The way I look at it is this. At Concord, as I mentioned a moment ago about how um, Patriot forces are coming from all angles, to me, the British uh, Army or the British uh, military right here is a good classic example of what I like to call the elephant and the mosquito. The elephant versus the mosquito. The British, or let alone England, is the mightiest empire, in, or I should say militaristic empire in the world at this time. And here she is coming into colonial America as an elephant to impose her will not only upon uh, the people of Massachusetts, but also impose her will upon all the other colonies who who, as King George III once said, he um, basically declared all 13 colonies as ungrateful subjects. So this um, mighty empire now being the elephant, 
the biggest disadvantage that the elephant will have is that the elephant can't control where the mosquitoes are coming from. The Patriot Army, or let alone the militia, or what, what I call the mosquitoes, the militia can assemble at any moment. Thanks to Paul Revere, John Hancock, uh, Samuel Adams, and William Dawes, they've alerted the, all the towns nearby. So this way it gives all of the militiamen from other towns every means to muster, to get their, um, what do you call it, to get their, um, to, to help spread the word out to others to say, hey, it's time to go, let's assemble, let's, um, let's meet up here and we can get, and we can all um, disperse in different directions to catch the British off guard. So basically the mosquitoes know the surroundings far better than the elephant does. As a matter of fact, in David Hackett Fisher's book, Paul Revere's Ride, there was a, a section in Concord that became known as the Deadly Curve. It was a very sharp curve where you could either turn left or right. And no matter which direction the British went, they were um, surprised head-on by militiamen who fired at them who disrupted their lines to the point where the British were forced to uh, retreat in different directions. So basically, no matter how big your empire is, once you've overstretched it and you try to impose your will upon, as George III said, ungrateful subjects, it's gonna, there is no guarantee that the results are going to be 100% um, 100% to your advantage. As a matter of fact, um, how I know about the term the elephant and the mosquito, um, it had to do with a um, political cartoon from many years ago, and ironically it had to do uh, with the Vietnam War. Of course, I, I was born four years after uh, the fall of Saigon from 1975. Of course, I was born in 79, but um, there was a, a political cartoon that uh, had an elephant. The elephant represented the United States. The mosquito represented Vietnam, but in this case being North and South Vietnam. The, mosquito, the mosquitoes could come from all directions to um, wage war on the elephant. The elephant in the end realized that the war could not be won. And I think it's fair to say that the British over time are going to realize this too. It may not happen overnight, but I think they will learn um, their first hard lesson will be uh, learned in the aftermath of what will come after um, after bunker after uh, conquered, I should say. But keep this in mind, folks, about the elephant and the mosquito, because it will play out on many other occasions as um, hostilities spread to other uh, colonies. So, in the days after Lexington and Concord, the Committee of Safety convenes. Joseph Warren himself wrote a letter to multiple Massachusetts towns demanding that all New Englander demanding that all New Englanders assist with establishing a Patriot Army. Okay? And what do we mean by Patriot Army, folks? What we're now seeing is the gradual if, if not evolution, but the gradual evolving of going from what you call contraband groups 
or let alone militia groups, now to an army that could be seen perhaps as the forerunner to a continental army, an army that could represent the entire, um, what do you call it, an army that represents uh, colonial America. So, what's important about um, April 23rd, 1775? Well, that's four days after Lexington and Concord. The Second Massachusetts Provincial Congress unanimously votes to establish an army that would be comprised of thousands of men. Well, I think it's smart, given what has, what has transpired in the days after Lexington and Concord, I, the people in Massachusetts now know that, hey, we're going to be in for um, a long-term fight, but we've got to have some kind of um, national army put into play. We're not the United States as we know just yet, but we've got to find a way now to make it happen. And um, on April 29th of 1775, the Second Provincial Congress authorizes the Committee of Supplies to obtain every form of military necessities, or let alone necessity, to ensure that the army itself was prepared in defending Massachusetts. Given that British General Thomas Gage's forces were currently contained in Boston. All right, so it's one thing to have um, General Gage and his men contained in Boston. The bigger question is: is the bigger question now lies in the fact over how long you can contain them in Boston, because if you don't contain them in Boston, then General Gage has other outlets he can he can uh, resort to. I mean, he can um, move his forces south into what we into uh, New York City. He could even go further south to Philadelphia. But the bottom line is right now, in order to have the upper hand on the British, you've got to keep them in Boston. So uh, here's a bonus question to think about. In the aftermath of Lexington and Concord, was it safe for Joseph Warren to return back to Boston? And the answer is no. Why so? Well, given that so many Patriot sympathizers had fled the city for safety reasons, Warren himself already knew that he was wanted for treason by the Crown. And if he went back to Boston, he wouldn't have anything to return to, which could have ensured, which could not have ensured long-term safety. So now... For, in Joseph Warren's eyes, he's got to now think to himself, okay, where do I go from here? If it's not safe for me to go to Boston, and you have to remember too, he's already um, he's already overseen to it that his um, companion, Mercy Scolay, and his children are have been relocated to the countryside. And that could be somewhere near Lexington and Concord, for all we know. But it's a good 20 miles outside of Boston. So if you think about it, in those days, to, to be removed to a secure location 20 miles outside of um, Boston, that's actually very good. Uh, this way, uh, the chances of being caught are probably a lot um, less likely than you were in the city. 
Now, unfortunately, I hate to say this, but um, Joseph Warren's medical practice is basically shut down. But it makes sense because all of his clients have fled, fled Boston. And it's not because they don't want to be in Boston anymore. But think about this. Joseph Warren and his other fellow leaders like Paul Revere, Sam Adams, John Hancock, and William Dawes, they need as many men as they can get possible to um, get the word out about the British presence. And obviously that was the case come the battles at Lexington and Concord. So um, not only was Joseph Warren's medical practice shut down, but but Boston, but along with his, the property that he owned in Boston, and any personal belongings that were left in the hands of British troops. But the British alone would ransack the Old South Meeting House of its furnishings. The Old South Meeting House was a uh, big was a big uh, what do you call it a uh, place where um, Warren and other leaders. Uh, met um, to discuss uh, how to um, deal with um, with the uh, brutal practices that, that had been imposed on by the British on um, the people of Boston. But yes, the British ransacked the Old South Meeting House of its furnishings, and they used the Brattle Street Church as a as for their own um, barracks uh, purposes. Now, many of you are wondering, was there another reason for why so many people left Boston? Well, for one, General Gage and his forces have occupied the city. I think that was pretty much their goal. Knowing that, okay, they were going to strike in Concord in Lexington, now here's the, here's the big catch. If all these people leave Boston and the British and the Loyalists stay behind, who does Boston belong to? It's very simple. All of those who are loyal to the crown. So, did General Gage allow non-Loyalists to leave Boston peacefully? Yes. But here's a catch. If you were going to, you can leave Boston peacefully, but you also have to uh, surrender your arms. That means your muskets and rifles. Now, remember this, folks. A musket and a rifle was, a, whether a man had a musket or a rifle, it was his livelihood. In other words, it was a form of security. And think about those two folks. You know, we don't have grocery stores back then. So if you want um, to have, say, deer or rabbit, um or any kind of uh, live game for dinner, well, you have to have your rifle uh, to shoot <laughs> to shoot the um, animal with. But sadly, um, we must remember that not everyone gets to leave um, Boston peacefully. I mean, you do get to leave peacefully, but re- but there, the the catch is is that you've got to give up your weapons. So the surrender of weapons will basically mean that General Gage and his troops will see less conflicts or let alone hostilities between rebels and redcoats. On May 2nd of 1775, Joseph Warren is elected president of the Second Provincial Congress. He is now pretty much at the height of his um, 
glory. And he has uh, deserved it. I mean, this man has gone above and beyond to um, ensure that the people of Massachusetts are safe, no matter what sacrifices it takes. But this also includes being involved in every phase of Massachusetts's political and military affairs. And another bonus question to consider is the following. In the aftermath of Lexington and Concord, which patriot military figure made his way to Cambridge and introduced himself to, to Joseph Warren? I didn't know this, and I'm probably glad that I reread it because it is worth sharing. He, he will basically become one of those figures who falls into the love-hate relationship. His name is uh, Benedict Arnold. He had inquired about capturing uh, cannon at the British-held base in Fort Ticonderoga, New York. And I will admit that uh, my wife and I um, have been to Fort Ticonderoga, and that is a very, very uh, well worth um, um, historic military fort to visit. It played um, an essential role in the French and Indian War as well as in the um, American Revolution. And when my wife and I went to uh, Lake Placid, New York, 10 years ago for our five-year anniversary, we actually got to see a live uh, reenactment take place of the French and Indian War. So if any of you all plan up plan going up into the Adirondacks, um, definitely try to visit Fort Ticonderoga. Um, you'll definitely um, you'll definitely get a um, good um, his, historic appreciation. So, anyways, um, Joseph Warren um, helps persuade the provincial Congress to provide Benedict Arnold with the necessary supplies, which in the end proves to be a success because. Um, Benedict Arnold and Ethan Allen lead the raid, um, a surprise raid attack on the British and end up um, taking Fort Ticonderoga by surprise. Now come May 19th of 1775, Artemis Ward is promoted to head commander of the Massachusetts Army and Warren himself delivered um, Ward's commission. Now, Think about this, folks. There is no George Washington just yet. Now, yes, George Washington, um, you know, in other words, you know, we're, we, we've always been led to believe that George Washington was the head commander of the Continental Army from the very, very beginnings at Lexington and Concord, but that's not true. He was not there. But he will eventually become commander of the Continental Army, but how it happens is something that um, probably shouldn't be taken lightly either. Another bonus question that I think uh, should definitely be taken into consideration, and this is something that I didn't know until having read the book and then had to remind myself again, but it is very easy to assume that... Um, that after the battles of Lexington and Concord had taken place, that no other battles occurred until June 17th of 1775, being at Bunker Hill. But here's a surprise uh, bonus question for you all. Did other skirmishes occur between Patriot and British forces in the aftermath of Lexington and Concord? Well, what do you know? The answer is yes. 
It turns out there were two small-scale battles. Number one, at a nearby island known as uh, Grape Island near the coast of Weymouth, and Weymouth is outside of Boston. It was a uh, skirmish where Patriot General John Thomas ordered three companies, or let alone units, to defend the locals on the island. The British were in desperate need of restocking on supplies. And what do you mean by supplies? Well, they need food. They need um, other uh, necessities. But remember, folks, it's like I said earlier about how when uh, the Patriots, or uh, what do you call it, um, well, Patriots are those against the Crown had to surrender their arms in order just to leave Boston peacefully. Well, remember this. If you're on the British side or British soldier, you don't have a, um, a convenient store to go to or let alone a grocery store to go to um, buy um, more rations. Uh, historians know that even throughout the American Revolution, there were plenty of incidents on both sides, uh, patriots and uh, redcoats, where um, soldiers came onto people's farms and literally, stole, literally um, seized livestock because they were so desperate for food. I can only imagine what the conflicts had to be like because it's one thing to want to help the patriots, but if you're a farmer and you're you know the head head ma- head male of the uh, household, uh, the father that is, you've got to think about your own family to feed as well too. But these were trying times even on the British side, so here they are desperate in need of restocking their supplies. Now, luckily, no Patriot losses occurred. Three British soldiers were injured. The vast majority of the uh, hay was kept out of British hands, but the British did seize upon one to two tons of hay. The rest of it, though, was burned to keep out of their hands. The second battle was at a place known as uh, Noddles Island. It was another situation where patriots went about blocking uh, the flow of provisions needed by General Gage's troops from several harbor islands. And once again, the patriots sustained no losses. The British had two deaths. So think about it, folks. Yes, there may have been two battles on April 19th of 1775. But in the days... After, in a short amount of time, there would be other skirmishes. And we uh, prevailed by uh, preventing the British from um, not just stealing, or not just stealing, but taking away um, supplies, but we also prevented innocent civilians from losing their lives. It's bad enough when, say, you could lose five or six soldiers by violence, gun violence, on the battlefield, but think about the innocent civilians. They're the ones who probably suffer more than the um, soldiers because they're the ones that when, when innocent civilians died, just like even in today's time, more often than not, it's being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Now, on April 25th of 1775, a British frigate by the name of uh, Cerberus arrives in Boston 
with Generals William Howe, Henry Clinton, and John Burgoyne, along with a set of uh, backup troops. This is to be. This is seen as a sign of uh, relief to the loyalist population in Boston because many of the loyalist um, people are desperate for, in their eyes, for better leadership on how to curtail this um, unexpected momentum on the side of the Patriots. So the period between Lexington and Concord to eventually what would become known as Bunker Hill, and we will talk about Bunker Hill in the next uh, podcast session, but the period between Lexington and Concord to Bunker Hill would become known as the, become known as the 60 Days. Joseph Warren was the only Patriot leader, both civilian and military, or who was engaged in all four of these skirmishes, or should I say battles, during this period. Besides fighting in battles, Warren himself helped advance the rebellion into a revolution. So yes, what has started out for so long in terms of... Um, denouncing the intolerable acts to um, what took place on the night of March 5th, 1770, five years later, uh, to dumping well over 100, to dumping almost 350-some chests of tea into the Boston Harbor. There has been a lot that's been going on in five years. Uh, Battles themselves just didn't happen overnight. Or, or let alone the Boston Massacre didn't happen overnight. It happened over time through other events. So it's one thing to rebel on the streets. Now it, it's now another question of how do you take your, um, what do you call it, how do you take those passions and carry them over onto a battlefield? You know, I should also point it out, even in uh, David Hackett Fisher's book, Paul Revere's Ride, that pretty much all the British uh, troops, they ridiculed how um, the militiamen were clothed. After all, folks, the British, if you're the mightiest militaristic empire in the world, you're going to be well clothed, regardless of your rank. In 1775, uh, the American militia are really what you call a bunch of ragtag men. There's nothing wrong with that. It turns out that those who may not have been as well clothed as their British counterparts were, it turns out that the the ones who were the who were not what you call top of the line clothed, or they didn't have the top of the line clothing, were the ones who emerged as the victors. In other words, they knew how to fire a rifle. They knew how to fire their muskets. They knew how to march. They knew how to um, assemble in line. Matter of fact, even the British scoffed at how they trained and drilled out on the open uh, fields. But you know what? It paid off. If you inflict nearly 300 uh, casualties at Concord, and you may not be the best uh, clothed of men, what does that tell you right there? You're just as intelligent and smart as those who are well clothed. 
So remember, folks, uh, it's like that old saying, don't judge a book by its cover. Well, in this case, don't judge <laughs> those who are not the uh, best uh, clothed because they are just as powerful and resourceful as those who are, um, what we call as those who wear fine clothing. So um, I should also point out, too, that, that um, the provincial army that fought at Lexington and Concord and at these other skirmishes, being at um, Grape Island and Noddles Island, this provisional army, it, it's comprised of men elsewhere besides Massachusetts. Where else would they be comprised from? New Hampshire, Connecticut, and Rhode Island. Well, there again, folks, think about it. Those states border Massachusetts. So think about it. Those other three other New England states are impacted by all this, and they are going to come to uh, their fellow uh, patriots in Massachusetts. They're going to be on their side. And it, and it is, and why, how can we say that these other, um, that men from these other colonies came along to fight, it's because Joseph Warren knew how to uh, communicate with patriots in other colonies. He was able to spread the word. And it's, and I do believe it's fair to say that the committees of correspondence, especially in New Hampshire, Connecticut, and Rhode Island, played a very essential role in getting the word out to those uh, militiamen from those colonies to come out and support their fellow brethren in Massachusetts. And I also have to give Joseph Warren credit for doing this. He also opened the doors for alliances with the Six Indian Nations Tribe or the Six Indian Nations uh, League to gathering arms, ammunition, and food for soldiers to establishing a navy. If any of you all are wondering, who are the Six Indian Nations? Well, it's otherwise referred to as the League of the Iroquois from New York State. It was comprised of the Seneca... Cayuga, Canandaigua, the Oneida, Mohawk, and um, what would eventually be the Tuscarora, who joined in, uh, back in 1722. So what people don't forget, and one of the biggest mistakes that the British made, is that they did not establish an alliance with any of these uh, six Indian nations. Why would that have been essential well, think about it. Most Indians are not on good terms with, Eng with the English. Think about it. The Indians have seen their land be taken from them by means of disease and war. But as for uh, the six Indian nations, they still have a lot of land in what is now known as the present-day Finger Lakes region through Niagara Falls up into the Thousand Islands into... Um, what's known as the present-day Mohawk Valley country. So the bottom line is they've got a lot of land. And, well, it's not just land, but had the British, had General Gage sent men into um, present-day, uh, what, what we now know is uh, Albany, New York, and into Syracuse, present-day Syracuse, they could have established plans with, the, with these tribes to come in and... Um, perhaps capture many of the people from Massachusetts to the point where it could have resulted in some other uh, bloody massacres. Well, none of that happens. 
So this is an example of where Joseph Warren beat the uh, British to the punch. And um, once hostilities will uh, break out even further past 1775, uh, I do know that um, I think two or three of the uh, six Indian nations tribes did join the 